All right. Enough with all of this happy things. Tell me some shit that will depress me tonight. Welcome to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. We are a horror podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. I'm Alexandria Youngray with my lovely co-host, Sunshine Billon. Hello! I can't believe I waved when I did that. (laughs) Anyway. Oh yeah. (sighs) Obviously, trigger warning again. We're not changing topics. This is still about child abuse and child sexual assault and all of those fun not fun things so you have been trigger warned carry on <laughs> horrible oh, God. carry on carry on um, well, <laughs> I think that at this point people oughtn't be listening if uh, they can't handle it right it's part two yeah, you you know what to expect. It does yes. get a little gnarly in this episode, though, because mm-hmm. we're actually going into what really happens. Okay, well, hit me with it. Okay. So, real quick recap for anybody who listened two weeks ago, but doesn't remember what happened. <laughs> so, Jacob Wetterling was biking with his brother and best friend to go rent a movie, and on their way back, a man grabbed him off of his bike, told his brother and best friend to run away, and then when they turned back, he was gone. And when we last picked up, the search had been essentially foobard, and they had no idea what had happened to Jacob. So. Poor disappeared. Yep. So that's that's our fucking hit-the-wall stop. So we're going we're gonna to go back in time. Like, back, back, back in time? How far back, back? Uh, 1986. Okay. So this happened in 1989. So we're just going back to 1986. So let's get in the time travel machine. And, um... (laughs) Good, good, good. That that was me pulling... That was that was me pulling down the headrest. It sounded a little bit like a lock and load sound. I need to work on that. But it it was pulling down the, like, contraption that goes over your body to strap you in so you don't, you know, fly off into the ether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Arms and legs inside the vehicle, all that jazz. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So I have a map that I pulled up of Stearns County that I'll I'll post with the... Oh, I see it. I see it. I'll post this with the Instagrams. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've got red dots for big deal stuff, and then I've got some pink dots just for, like, they are areas that have been brought up oh i see or will be brought up my computer screen's a little dirty so i couldn't see one of the pink dots <laughs> they're not the biggest deal it's the red dots that are the big deal right so we're we're going so you see saint joseph is right up in the it's like the yep, middle I see it. right yep right off of 94 mm-hmm. wait 94 mm-hmm. that's not what it says do i need glasses oh 94 gotcha woohoo 
And then we are going back to Painesville, which is the bottom one. Yep, I see that. Okay. So it's Painesville. It's 1986. There is a bunch of weird attacks on young boys. So basically preteen to early teens boys. Okay. So... And I, I wanna I wanna remind you what happened with the Jacob Wetterly abduction. Mm-hmm. A man comes out, th- these boys are on their bicycles. A man comes out, he has a mask on his face, maybe nylons. He threatens the boys that he'll kill them. He asks them how old they are. Then he he grabs Aaron's crotch. Yeah. He tells the boys to run away. He takes Jacob. Wasn't there something about a ditch as well? Like yeah, he has them? them. He has them get in the ditch. Okay. Lay, lay face down. Mm-hmm. So I just want that to be like the context. Okay. For this back in time story. Okay. So the first attack is August 1986. There's an alley behind the Papa's Pizza. Mm-hmm. A man with maybe mud on his face. That's that's how it was described. Okay. Uh, he's approximately 5'9". He's a husky white male. He jumped out from the bushes and knocked a boy off his bike. Then he struck him in the nose. And when the boy struck him back, he fled on foot. Okay. So when he fought back, he ran away. Uh-huh. Okay. And I just want to, like... I just want to say, like... Remember how when you were short, you had no idea how tall people were? Like, you mean when you're a child and you don't have a concept for... When you're a young child. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Basically, anybody that's taller than you is, like, super tall. Right. So all of these descriptions describe him as relatively short for a man. So right. just keep that in mind. Right, I was noticing that on the outline. Mm-hmm. So then the next attack is August... It's August 21st, 1986. It is still at the Papa's Pizza. So with the same month. Mm-hmm. A man who is described as heavy set, five six be- between five six and five eight, wearing long sleeve sweater and gloves. He attacked uh, one of two boys. Mm-hmm. He hit the back of his head, knocking him to the ground. Then he groped the boy's front pockets. The second boy approached, and the man fled on foot. Okay. Yeah, this is definitely seeming like a trend already. Mm-hmm. I mean, these these were. Um, connected. At least at some point, these these attacks were connected. So like then we proven to, to be connected. Well, not necessarily proven. Just police figured out that they were probably related to each other. Okay. Especially because of the mo. Yeah. Then we've got November thirtieth, nineteen eighty six. So a couple months later, a man described as heavy set, wearing a nylon windbreaker jumped out of the bushes and put a hand over the boy's mouth. Then he dragged the boy into some trees. He broke the boy both above and under his clothes. Mm. He took the boy's hat and cut a bit of his hair. Then he asked for the boy's name and age. Really? After the attack, he told the boy to keep laying down for five minutes or the attacker would shoot him, and he fled on foot. Okay. Okay. 
This is not getting. This is. I just feel it like things are getting worse. It doesn't worse. get better. It doesn't yeah. get better. It's. It's got to get worse. <sighs> so February. Oh, this sucks. Okay, so February fourteenth, nineteen eighty-seven. So Valentine's. Happy Valentine's. We're in an apartment stairwell. A man described as heavy set, five six, wearing a dark colored quilted jacket and a face mask. The boy had been at Papa's Pizzas earlier that day. So there's a connection to maybe he's stalking them from, from the pizza Papa's place. Pizzas, yeah. Uh, the man grabbed the boy and threw him down the steps, and the boy began to scream. The man told him to keep quiet or he'd kill him. Then the man groped the boy both over and under his clothes. He asked the boy what grade he was in. He told the boy not to move or he'd kill him. The man took the boy's wallet and fled on foot. So we're only halfway through when we've got something of a pattern established. Right. That's And that's not even, I feel like that's a very blatant pattern. Like they're all related oh, yeah. to the pizza place and they're all sneak attacks. And they all have the same like, don't move for this amount of time or run over here or do this thing or I'll kill you. Yeah. No, they've all, and also you see this escalation, which I think is a really important. Oh, thing you're right. Know. Is that, like, dude's escalating. Right, both in his uh, sexual assault and in how aggressive he is with the mm-hmm. physical attacks. Yeah, because it starts with him just running out and punching a boy in the face and then freaking out and running away. Yeah. And then he starts groping. And then he starts, like, grabbing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, there's an escalation. So, this is the shittiest... May 17th, 1987. It's a public street the same boy from the fourth attack so from the february attack mm-hmm. so oh, he's described no. similarly pudgy with a dark looking face and dark colored clothing grabbed the boy off his bike and groped him the boy told the man he'd already gotten him once before and the man fled on foot but he, this time he left behind a baseball cap mm. and did i put it in the outline the grab me by the testicles thing the uh, cursive, yeah, like that. Yeah, I can't really read it though. So it says, "Grab me by the testicles." I told him that this was the second time he got me. Mm. So I might, I might put that in as a uh, Instagram thing. But th- this one just like particularly hurt me. Well, because it happened twice. Yeah, like how fucked is that? Like, literally, the town's, like, jump out of the bushes pedo, which is just, it's it's almost like villain comic, you know? Like, there's no way this is real. That's something that's written in a bad 80s film. Well, and the fact that uh, you aren't often um, confronted with the face and the facts and the numbers that kind of correlate one perpetrator like this. Like, seeing what we can presume is one person's uh, work, extensive mm-hmm. attacks in one in a, such a small amount of time is really unsettling and really upsetting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is all over, like, essentially just a two-year span. So these poor kids... So yeah, that's my, like, that's my least favorite Not story. Not only is he getting Not assaulted. Is this kid, like, groped both times. By the same person. But he's assaulted twice. By the that same was person. terrible. I just oh god, it hurts me. Oh, 
that poor kid. I can't even imagine. Particularly right. because he's like well, literally that's... a stranger. Just like the boogeyman yeah, caught you. I can twice. only imagine like the difficulty even going outside after that. It's so fucked. Like I hope he got some high quality therapy. Right. I really do. Yeah. Same. Same. I hope all of these kids got some serious, like, good shit therapy. It appears as though the list goes on, though. It does. It does go on. I I think Mm -hmm. that it it calms down slightly from this point on. Uh, There's less sexual assault, at least. Uh, So there's September 20th, so it's been a few months. Uh, September 20th, 1987. A man described as chubby, 5'7 to 5'8, with short chubby legs. And he either painted his face or wore a mask. He approached two boys who screamed and ran away. And the man fled on foot. But the boys had been at the Papa's Pizzas earlier that mm-hmm. night. Which is how they connected this particular. And and this basically around this time when mm-hmm. police had started connecting the these cases, uh, they had started like putting things in newspapers around the town basically warning kids like if you see a strange okay man, so that probably because i was wondering like why you, we see this like build in aggression and, and boldness and then uh after that it drops off again and he's you know uh relatively you know for what's going on he's more timid and yeah. uh, not as aggressive yeah i mean there's still some stuff in here where you're mm-hmm. like okay i can still see there's like a touch of escalation but also uh-huh. you can see, like, basically Good. the town being more aware has made them safer. Which is another, like, fucking education, man. But um, I also think that it's possible that he attacked the same boy twice and the boy recognized him. And so he got a little more concerned about right. yeah. carrying if on He this victimized somebody behavior. and they recognized him enough to know that it was him again, then maybe they could identify him later. Yeah, exactly. So so then actually almost a whole year passes. It's the late summer, 1988. Um, a man described as a white male with a husky build. He wore pantyhose over his face. He had camo-colored pants and a green army-type jacket, black boots, black gloves. He attacked a boy while he was camping with his friend. The man tackled the boy and put a knife to his throat, telling him, shut up or I'll kill you. But the boy fought back and escaped without being harmed or broke. Nice. Yeah. So, like, fuck yeah, little kid. <laughs> you punch that creepy man. You punch him right mm-hmm. in the nose. Kind of kids who can go camping by themselves. Gotta be tough. Yeah. I mean, 1988, you're letting your kid... And also, it was probably, like, one of those, like, oh, it was the woods behind the house kind of camping. Yeah, but still. But, like, still, yeah. Fucking punch the weird dude. If some weird dude picks you up, Punch him in the face and telling this to 10-year-olds that better not be listening to this podcast. No, this is not appropriate for 10-year-olds. Maybe if you're like, you know, an aunt or a mommy or a daddy, go ahead and tell your kids. If you have children in your life, tell them to punch the strange man in the face. And kick and scream and bite and go off. Uh, Then we go to the late fall of 1988. So a couple months later, a man described as husky white male, about 5'6". Possibly wearing a ski mask, black stocking hat, black shirt, pants, and gloves. He attacked a boy on his bicycle while he was delivering papers. The man runs out from the trees, knocks the boy off his bike, and then runs away. 
So he doesn't even do anything once he gets him off yeah. his bike. It was essentially like a reenactment of the first one where he just runs up and punches some kid in the face. Yeah. Interesting. So there were poss- there were entirely possibly more. Especially if he like groped some boys because like toxic masculinity, why would I yeah. 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 Like we don't talk about sexual assault and we definitely don't talk about sexual assault against men. Yeah. And we don't talk about sexual assault against boys. So I could see these being like the ones that were documented. But I highly doubt that these were the only I mean cases. What's what's really interesting for me again is I'm glad I'm glad there are fewer children who got assaulted, uh, sexually assaulted, but it's weird to me that he went, that there was that string at the end where, again, presumably it's the same guy, and he's just doing those sort of blitz attacks and then nothing else, Mm -hmm. which makes me either wonder, why is he not, what's stopping him? But then also, maybe that just wasn't reported for the same reasons we were just discussing. Maybe they only reported the attack and not the assault. For whatever reason, to protect their kid, yeah. because they weren't ready to deal with it. I don't know. Right. Well, or, like, maybe the kid went home and just didn't want to talk about it to anybody. Yeah. And, like, if you think about the the boys camping mm-hmm. one, that could have gone really, really far. Yeah. Because he put a knife to that kid's throat. He had, like, tackled him and put a knife to that kid's throat. So if the boy hadn't fought back, who knows what would have happened. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't think it was necessarily like an escalation and then de-escalation, even though it was. Like maybe the opportunity just fluctuates very Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And like and like I do think that like attacking the same boy twice probably spooked him. So he at least attempted to behave better. But you know, who knows if he was maybe going to other towns and attacking boys in other towns. Right, what the what yeah. So okay, give me again. You know, remind me, uh, and and the listeners, uh, the year the Jacob Wetterling case began. Nineteen eighty nine, October nineteen eighty nine. Okay. So this ends in the late fall of nineteen eighty eight. So about a year prior. Okay. So this whole town was on edge, especially the young teen and, and preteen mm-hmm. boys. They considered in, instating a curfew, but they ultimately decided to just put out warnings to the public of Painesville. Okay. So this was the articles posted in newspapers and PSAs where uh, they were telling kids that if a strange man approaches them to scream and run away. So I feel like, especially because like finding the random dude that like pushed a boy off of his Mm -hmm. bike or groped a kid and then ran away, that probably actually is very legitimately difficult to find the the perpetrator. Right. Right. When you don't have... so. When that's what you've got to work with, I feel like they handled that relatively appropriately. Well, and I think, you know, there's that whole idea of instilling a curfew being something that could create panic and unnecessary mistrust mm-hmm. that not only is going to be a big uh, stressor for the community and create a lot of division when people need to be coming together, but also, like, yeah. it's unnecessary. Well, and also, like, I worry about, like, okay, so there's the one kid that violates curfew. Mm -hmm. Now he's out by himself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You don't have, you immediately take away anybody's chance for safety in numbers. Mm -hmm. So, so I definitely think that they did the right thing in not putting in a curfew, but just putting out PSAs Mm -hmm. and, like, telling kids to, like, scream and run away. Like, I think that was definitely the appropriate 
appropriate way to deal with that. So good on you, Painesville. <laughs> I guess. So yeah, that's the shitty Painesville case. Now we're gonna get into a really awful. I will try to be as respectful as I can in reporting it, uh, but it's really okay. bad. Okay, so we're gonna go to January 1989. This is the story of Jared Shiro. Mm-hmm. This dude's actually, he's basically the hero of this case. He's a really fucking cool guy. But let me tell you his story before we get into why he's such a badass. So Jared Sherrill grew up in a small town uh, called Cold Spring, which you can see in that map. It's about halfway between St. Joe and Painesville. Okay, yep, I see it. Yep. So, in January of 1989, Jared was 12. Uh, It was January 13th, 1989. Jared had been ice skating with a bunch of friends, and they finished off the day at a local cafe. So they, like, went and got malts, because in Minnesota, you can't have enough cold. (laughs) I presume. (laughs) Um, Afterwards, some of the kids were picked up, but Jared and his best friend Corey had to walk home. And, oh my god, this breaks my entire heart. So Jared asked Corey to walk him home, and he said no. Oh no. And I, and Corey was interviewed in In the Dark podcast, and I am 100% sure that Corey spent the rest of his life regretting saying no. Oh, and I mean, he's still alive, yeah. but like, the way he talked about it, like, he got kind of choked up, like, oh my god, like, I'm almost, I am almost crying <laughs> just thinking about it. It's... Yeah, rough. I can only imagine. So... Yeah, because, I mean, like, think about, like, me and you. Like, like remember that time that you definitely saved my ass from being sexually assaulted? Yes. Could you imagine if you hadn't come and, like, saved me? Yeah, if I hadn't have been like, no, this is not happening. Like, you're coming Like, not me. only would that have happened to me, but you would have had to deal with the fact that you could have saved me. Right, exactly. Like, oh, my God. So, bless you. Thank you. Yes, of course. <laughs> and also, Corey, it's not your fault. <laughs> Because he's definitely listening. Yes. Um, so it's around 9, 9.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's January. It's after dark. Jared was stopped by a man in a blue car who was asking for directions. Jared began a- approaching the vehicle, and the man got out, grabbed Jared, and told him, get in the car. Get the fuck in the car. I have a gun, and I'm not afraid to use it. Okay. So, nice, big, terrifying stranger ab- abduction. So the man had Jared pull his stocking cap over his face and lie down in the back seat. Then he drives for about 10 to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Jared, so he he did two pretty clever things. He he did his best to kind of peer out of the stocking cap to kind of see, like, the lights and stuff going by. Go, Jared. And he did a really, really good job of, like, paying really close attention to where the man was turning. Okay. And honestly, he thinks that the man was driving kind of erratically to confuse him. So I'm, I'm impressed. But he thinks that he ended up at about Richmond, which is between Cold Spring and Painesville. Okay. Pretty close. Yeah, I to see it Cold on the map. Spring. Yeah. Yep. That was one of the pink ones. So the man got in the back seat with Jared and sexually assaulted him. Okay. He kept Jared's pants and underwear but let him put his snowsuit back on after wiping it down with a, either a rag or a mitten. And then he told Jared, 
So, so he took Jared back to Cold Spring and dropped him off about two miles from his home, mm-hmm. but he first made him roll around in the snow. So he's basically doing, like, a handful of weird little things to, like, try to get rid of evidence, right? Right. So I'm not going to go into the sexual assault because having heard Jared talk about it, he clearly doesn't like to talk about it, so I'm not going to talk about it. I think that's great. <laughs> Nobody really needs those details. It's not really our yeah. business. Yep. So... Anyway, the man told Jared that he could talk about what happened to him, but if the police caught on to, like, if the police caught on to the man, that he would find Jared after school and shoot him. That's interesting. So the perpetrator uh, specifically told him that he could talk about what happened to him. Mm-hmm. That seems like a really odd, um, I don't know, that to me sticks out as being very odd. And maybe I it is kind of odd. Maybe I'm. I don't really know what that means. Well, it doesn't really connect to anything else. I, yeah, and not. I mean, you would obviously know, right? Having done the research, but I guess one thing that it makes me think of that I I need to point out, even if it's completely off base, not to uh, humanize somebody who's obviously doing monstrous things, but it immediately makes me wonder if he was one of those uh, perpetrators that was a victim first. To be perfectly honest, so I'm going to get into his backstory. Mm-hmm. I think he was. So to me, that's what that speaks to, right? To me, I hear that and yeah. I go, if you're assaulting somebody, right? We were just barely talking about it. Like, not only in this era do people not talk about sexual assault, but certainly not sexual assault against men or young boys. Mm-hmm. So if you're the kind of person that would perpetrate it, but then turn around and say, it's okay to talk about it as long as it doesn't get me caught. I feel like that's some weird uh, glimmer of of humanity and like kind of seeing yourself in the victim but maybe you know maybe that's just a i don't know or just understanding that like this might be a thing that he you know needs to talk about but yeah right that's a weird I, regardless I, it's a really weird demonstration of either understanding or empathy or mm-hmm. whatever it is it's just very odd to me yeah I mean, the thing is, very rarely are, like, monsters just sort of popped in out of thin air, you know? Yeah. Like, I think Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy can eat a dick. He had a fine childhood. (laughs) Like, me and you had a worse childhood than Ted Bundy. Okay, good to know. You know? But, like, most, most... perpetrators of horrible things also have been through horrible things yeah you know now obviously that does not give them an excuse but it's kind of one of those like i don't know you got to think about people as as people you got to think about them complexly right even such a thing as like oh i'm a monster right even when people do monstrous things it's to no one's benefit to see them as a monster you have to see them as a person in Uh in order to make any real progress to understand what's up yeah. Okay, so let's let's get back into this then. I'm sorry I got so distracted by that. No, it's important. Also, Hannah would like you to know that she has a ball. Yes, I heard her meowing. <laughs> so I, I just sort of pulled out of the police report Jared's description of the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. So he described him as a white male, approximately in his 30s, approximately 5'6 to 5'7", Weighing approximately 170 pounds, with dark brown mid-length hair, brown eyes, fat ears that stuck out, a fat nose, bushy eyebrows, rough wrinkled skin, 
darker complected with dark hair, broad neck and thick skull, so, shoulders, sorry, mm-hmm. rough, short, thick hands, a pudgy beer belly, stomach, uh, crooked bottom teeth like cheese teeth, and a deep raspy voice. The, the driver also had an indentation of a ring on his right finger. He was wearing a brown baseball cap with an un, with unknown lettering, a dark-colored zip-up vest, camo fatigues, black army boots, and military-style watch. Hmm. So, essentially, like, a short, dark-haired, chubby guy who was wearing... Black boots Military-esque military. clothes. That sounds familiar. Yes, it does. And um, he described the car as a dark blue four-door with a luggage rack on the trunk and a blue cloth interior. And uh, he said the car smelled new. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also mentioned that there was a police scanner in the car. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. If I recall correctly. It's not listed in here, but I'm almost certain that he said something about hmm. there being a police. Yes, I think he did. Yes. So three days after the ta- the attack, the police come up with the name Danny Heinrich. So this is the first time that I have said the name of the perpetrator in this case. So he was he he was proven to be the one who did it. Yes, after a thousand years. Well, thank God they finally got him. Yes. <laughs> Still mad at the police, though. So, Danny Heinrich lived in Painesville. Mm-hmm. He was born March 21st, 1963, so that would have made him about 25 mm-hmm. at the time of the attack. He was short, 5'5", and stocky. He drove a blue car, and he was a member of the National Guard. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> and Heinrich had a criminal record. Uh, burglary and DUIs. And one of the times that he had been pulled over, the police noticed that he had a police scanner that he was using to monitor police activity that was confiscated. You'd think that they would do more than confiscate. Like, that is definitely a sign that your his, his arrest was for, what, breaking and entering and drunk driving, you said? Um, when he had his police scanner confiscated, it was a DUI. Right, but his previous arrests, uh... He also had burglaries, yes. I feel like when you get arrested with a police scanner, it should be obvious that you're plotting something worse than a burglary. Well, he, when he got the DUI, he had probably assaulted those kids in Painesville. But, I don't think that he had any evidence of any other horrible atrocity right other than the police scanner that was confiscated okay so okay so we're going to get more into essentially how this case was solved okay so and how it was fucked we're we're going to get into how the police continued to fuck it up before we get into how it was solved. Okay. So Jared was shown Heinrich in a lineup and he picked out Heinrich and one other man as somebody who looked similar to the man who attacked him. Jared said the car had a luggage rack and a blue interior and 
and Heinrich's car had no luggage rack and a gray interior. However, later investigators had Jared sit in the car mm-hmm. and he said that it looked exactly right. He wouldn't change a thing. Okay. Well, in gray and blue, like, come on. Right. I don't even know if my carpet's gray or blue half the time. Right. Yeah, no, it's like, is that really? Okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> so, no one was charged for Jared's abduction. What? Or assault. No one was charged. Even though they brought this guy in? Uh, they said that they just didn't have enough proof on him. Okay. Yep. Um, but then when Jared, or when Jacob was kidnapped police were able to quickly make the connection that the two cases were likely committed by the same man. Which meant that they kind of went back to Jared. Mm -hmm. So Jared was in January, October, Jacob's kidnapped. So about a month and a half after Jacob's abduction, police contact Heinrich. Uh, He says he doesn't remember where he was October 22nd, 1989, which means no alibi. Mm Mm-hmm. Heinrich agrees to give a hair sample. He turns over his shoes, and he allows him to take the tires off of his car. And according to the police reports, the shoe prints were similar, and the tires were consistent. Okay. Meaning it wasn't, like, exactly, exactly, but it was... Not enough to rule him out, either. Yeah. So, the police survey Heinrich... And get a warrant to search his father's house. Mm -hmm. And he had moved into his father's house shortly after Jacob's abduction. Okay. Now, I find this a little annoying because they didn't get a warrant for his mom's house or his his mom's apartment, Mm -hmm. which is where he lived at the time of the abduction. And so where was that? Um, It was also in Painesville. Okay. He, He moved from Painesville to Painesville. Okay. In the house, they find black boots, camo pants, two radio scanners, and some locked trunks. Inside one of those locked trunks, they found two photos. One was of a boy in his underwear, and the other was of a boy coming out of the shower with a towel wrapped around him. Mm. Heinrich objected to them taking the photos, and so the police didn't, and so he burned them. What? So that happened. They had a warrant, and he objected to them taking something, so they left it? Yeah. Is that is that what it's like to be a man in the 80s, that you can, like... That's not... Well, so sometimes with a warrant, you have to specify the things that you are looking for. And if the thing that you find is outside of the things that you're looking for... Half-naked pictures of young boys when you're looking for a missing boy? Yeah, no, I, I think that they should have... Like. What the fuck? Yeah. I I think that was a little bit bullshit. Also, police were able to match a fiber from Jared's snowsuit to the interior of Heinrich's car. And this was before they decided not to arrest him? Yes. All of this was before. How? So, February 9th. I'm going to get into it. I'm going to get into it. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm I'm almost there. I'm I'm almost to the point where you can be angry. Okay. So, February 9th, 1990, law enforcement began an interrogation. They, and they implement certain, like, mental tricks to intimidate him. Mm -hmm. My personal favorite was they took, like, a big old file and marked it, you know, Danny Heinrich, and then just put a bunch of papers in there Mm -hmm. and just put it in the room. 
you know, to make it look like they had like a bunch of shit on him already. Mm-hmm. Um, I just Which they kind of fun. Uh, I mean, realistically, at that point, didn't they? Didn't they have enough to arrest him at that point? Like five. I mean, I the think snowsuit, they do, the the. But <laughs> I I don't think I would prosecute on this alone. But I would definitely urge police to keep going because I think we got our guy. Right. Okay. Okay. So. So they were trying to get him to confess to the abductions Uh of Jacob and Jared, but he just wouldn't confess. And that's when they gave up. He wouldn't confess, so they gave up? Yep. They just needed something else to, like, hold over his head. You know, like another crime or something. Who, what, um, was somebody unsure that he had done it? Or were they just like, oh, well, that's all the police and I know how to do. Like, how does that happen? I honestly have no idea because, like, they clearly thought that he had done it. And sure, there were other suspects and they were getting the bajillion D leads and all that jazz. But, like, he seems so likely that, like, even if you're like, okay, this isn't enough. I don't think I'd just rule them out and move on. No, absolutely not. Like, I'd keep keep following him. I'd keep... I'd talk to his friends and neighbors, which is a thing that they didn't fucking do. Mm -hmm. And his co-workers and his family and... Right, they didn't look into him any farther once he wouldn't confess. Yeah, they just gave up. Which, since when is not confessing a sign of innocence? People who are guilty keep their mouth shut all the damn time. Yeah, but, like, you can't convict him without a confession. You can't? No, I'm just being an asshole. (laughs) I was gonna say, I mean, like, that seems, like, no. I mean, like, it's often considered, like, the golden ticket, which is really annoying because people give false confessions all the time. Right. It's kind of like eyewitness testimony. Mm -hmm. It's, like, basically the stuff that is the least likely to be true is the stuff that is taken as the most valuable. Right, I was actually... But whatever. <laughs> right, I was thinking about, I know I've brought this up before, so I'll paraphrase it very quickly, but when I was a kid in high school, my my boyfriend had just left. It was, you know, late, but not, like, scandalously late at night. And I heard some peeling out, and I thought that he was, like, you know, goofing around driving down the road. So I look out the window just in time to see this, like... I don't think you've told this story on the Oh, podcast. really? This is great. So just in time to see this big white sedan cross over onto the wrong side of the road and run into my mom's car that was parked on the street and just totally like, you know, spun it around, knocked it up onto the embankment, just totaled. And, uh, I was scared to go outside because I didn't really know what I'd be getting into. So I stared out the window and ran to the front door and looked out the window at this guy and watched this guy run away. It was not your boyfriend. It was not my boyfriend, no. Just to clarify. And I had yelled down to my mom. My mom had gone out before me, and she caught a glimpse of him before I did. But I didn't go down until she was down there, and part of it was that, like, oh, I gotta, like, protect my mom, kind of. So anyway, I ran down after her, and I got to look at him as well, and he ran away. There was a whole series of other things going on, and this guy had already decided to batter his girlfriend and drive drunk. And so the cops were already out looking for him, thankfully, but we called the police and they showed up very quickly. And um, my mom, when she gave the description, you know, pretty, she said that he was average height, uh, dark clothing. She even thought he maybe had a darker complexion. And my description was completely different. I was like, no, he was like tall and wore all white clothes and had like, you know, short pants on and... I think he had red hair. 
And um, when they they brought they arrested him and brought him back to his car for some reason. Like they didn't have us interact with him, but they, we he he was handcuffed in front of us after they found him. And it was exactly what I described. He was very tall, very gangly, mm-hmm. redheaded, all white clothing. And it was just super interesting to me that my mom's description was so off. Mm-hmm. It's just completely different, you know, not, not short, tall, not black, white, not dark, complected, very fair, complected. And, um, I thought of that when we were going over the evidence and how, what's his name? The child that was abducted. Jacob Wetterling. No, Jared not Cheryl. Jacob. Jared. I know who Jacob is getting so much new information um, that when Jared was abducted, that something as trivial as the difference between gray and blue uh, interior right. in the car would really matter. They probably at the time didn't realize how impactful trauma is on your ability to remember things. Well, and not only that, but just how unreliable memory is in the first place, because my mom didn't, misremember anything because of some sort of severe trauma, right? That's kind of stressful having your car totaled and not knowing what's going on. It's like a mild trauma, right? But her memory wasn't affected by trauma. Mm -hmm. People's memories just suck. People's memories just suck. Yeah, you focus on the wrong things and then you add evidence to fill in the spaces where there are gaps and half the time the stuff that you, more than half most of the time, you add in stuff that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, basically, the fact that we've got all of these testimonies that are so similar is the only reason that you can rely on, like, oh, okay, this is probably the same guy. Right, short, stocky man, same attack. Like, the fact, you're right, the fact mm-hmm. there's so much consistency from so many people makes yeah. each one of their stories more believable. Yeah. And and this kind of this kind of relates because I was I was talking to you about how the the kids would have probably been shorter than they ultimately would end up being, but I, I think I've to- talked to you about this before with your case. I wonder if the reason you were able to tell that he was tall is because you're tall and your mom is short as fuck. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, no, this guy's tall, not an average height. Like, this is not. This is a big guy. So you can tell how tall somebody is because you're tall. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, the first person to report him was like, oh, he was 5'8", five, 5'9", five, which is shortish for a guy. But it's not, like, short. No. And dude was actually 5'5". Five, five. Yeah, that kid so must like, have been small. You know, a three-inch difference is probably, like, that's not a... Yeah. Especially, like, some dude just runs up and punches you in the nose. Yeah, no. Way. That's... I have no idea how I would describe somebody that just ran up and punched me in the nose. Right? I would get whether or not they had facial hair wrong. Right, yeah. Chances are. Like, I, I would be focusing on, like, is my nose broken? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what the fuck just happened? So, yeah. I mean, I mean, back to the back to the whole thing. They, they should have been able to get more evidence, and then they fucking bombed it. And to make matters worse... In in January, so so in February is when they did the interrogation. Mm-hmm. In January of 1990, the Painesville police chief notified the Wetterling investigation about the Painesville assaults, and they included with their no- notification that their main suspect was Danny Heinrich, and at least one of the Painesville victims 
notified the Wetterling investigators, but they never followed up. So, looking at this map, these towns, is this in one county? This is one county. These towns can't be more than a half an hour, 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So how is it that one, not only uh, civilians, but a police department can inform another police department about a case with strikingly similar MOs and have that not be worth following up on? It is amazing how much the police fucked up this like, case. The Wetterlings had a hotline in their home. They had the emotional torture of having a hotline in their home to take... Where fucking randos would call them and say, we have Jacob. Right. Or I had a dream that Jacob's legless in a barn. To take the most bogus calls that could even exist, yet when one police department communicates to the other about a really likely lead, they can't follow up on it? And, like, none of the investigators that were that were interviewed remembered hearing about the Plainsville attacks. What? And it's just, like... Also, how like, can you not you be... I know you a lot of leads, but, like... How can you not be at least somewhat abreast of the child assault situation in your county if that's the case you're working on? Yeah. No, I don't know. I honestly think that they fucked that up. I think that was... What, what are we on? Fubar number eight right now? I guess, and, and again, you know, not different times. They didn't have all the databases. They didn't have as as just impressive uh, communication as we have now. But, like, at what point do <laughs> what we've lovingly been calling Fubars, at what point does that become, like, negligence and just... Oh, I think they were definitely negligent. <sighs> I think they were negligent hard. And I mean, like, this county has a history of fucking up cases. Um, that was one of the things that In the Dark podcast went into that we just don't have time to cover. But, like, there were other cases that were high-profile cases that the police fucked up and should have been able to not fuck up. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's keep going with this shit show. So... Um, Oh, yeah. Also, in 1991, police received three calls over three weeks about a man watching and approaching children. And about a month after that, in 1991 still, um, a Painesville cop spotted a tan Buick following paper boys on their routes. The cop asks a Stearns County Sheriff deputy to look into it. So Stearns County is like the lead investigator on the Jacob Wetterling case, right? right? Okay, and that's the so Painesville contacts Stearns County. Right. The deputy followed the car and realized that the driver was Heinrich. So Heinrich's following boys on his paper route. Following paper route boys, but Heinrich was technically not breaking any laws, so he wrote up a report and did nothing else. Wouldn't you think that was a good enough reason to like reopen your case on Heinrich to like? kind of dig into him a little more. Well, especially if you still have the unsolved Jacob Wetterling case. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, these guys were still working on it. That's, like, one of the reasons that Painesville was like, hey, check this guy out. And they're still working on Jared's case because they haven't convicted anyone Mm -hmm. for that. So they have two open cases of sexual assault against boys in the same county Mm -hmm. who are roughly the same age who Mm -hmm. have... Similar, well, I guess you don't have what Jacob's uh, description, but 
But you have Aaron and right. Uh, right. Trevor. Right, you have their description, which is strikingly similar. Because they also describe, like, kind of a weird husky man. And, like, they described him as having a raspy voice, which Jared described him as having a raspy mm-hmm. voice. And I think it's so weird. I don't, I never heard anything about them taking Heinrich and asking, like, Aaron or Trevor to do a lineup. Mm-hmm. Or any Jared, Aaron, or Trevor to listen to the man speak. I wonder, was that something that was just not commonly done at that time? Or is this just another... I don't know why they didn't do that. Okay. I don't know why they didn't do that. Because it's not like it would have been hard to do that. Right. Like, you could have had them listen to several different men say, uh, what grade are you in? You know? Right. But obviously, I mean, again, if the same police department didn't even oh yeah, no, confiscate just example of his a <laughs> lewd pictures of young boys, like, come on, like, yeah, okay. No, it's just it was, an, it was another thing where it was like, yes, we are just armchair detectives. Like, we can't say that we could do better. But the fact that like all of this has been put in front of us. And it's so obviously egregious. Well, it's bad. So I think it's bad. It makes me think again about the whole opening up of the tip line and bringing the story national and all those things. I I wonder, I mean, how much did they shoot themselves in the foot with that? Like, I think at what point, I guess. And again, like, you know, I was just barely saying at what point do foobars become negligence, but at what point does, you know, them, because maybe this is wrong, because we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, and I think I might be off base, but the impression that I was getting from our first recording was that there were some things about the way they approached the case that were totally new. And, like, as far as, like, the level of national involvement and things like that and opening up the tip line. No, that wasn't totally new. See, okay, that's where that I was wrong. That has been done before. So, I just wonder, like, obviously they didn't have a system in place for dealing with that influx of information, they didn't. And at what point, like, what? at what point was that the problem? At what point were they so flooded with just bullshit information from the general public that it became, like, possible to lose really solid tips and leads within that? That right. wasn't even from that. Uh, that was like... I immediately... <laughs> <laughs> like, it makes me wonder. So not only, you know, we, we were talking about this as kind of how it leads to uh, creating the sex offender registry, right? Mm-hmm. And it just makes me wonder what other kind of rules or regulations or processes were put in place that are more internal to police departments that we don't know about. Things like, you know, public liaisons and, and things, you know, systems to sort of regulate how detectives are accessing information so that they're not yeah. uh, get, getting flooded and getting overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, to, to paraphrase one of the uh, people interviewed in uh, in the Dark podcast, I think that the Stearns County Sheriff's Department mistook hard work for good work. Mm-hmm. I like that. You yeah. know? So. You can work pretty hard banging your head against a wall. It doesn't mean it's going to get you anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, so that was, that was the big yuck. And police continued to investigate Jared's case because they they thought that it was the best lead to Jacob's case, which they were actually right about. Okay. 
But they were pestering him so much. And, like, you know who this was. Just tell us who it was. Like, you know, that sort of stuff. Right. Like, to, they were harassing like, the witness, basically. They were harassing him. And he he broke down. Like, there was one point where he was being essentially interrogated. And he came out crying. And his parents were like, fuck this. We're moving. So they moved from Cold Spring to Painesville. Oh, dear. Yeah. And when the family first moved, somebody told Jared to look out for Chester the molester. And at the time, he thought it was just a joke. Oh, God. So. So that's some bullshit. And now we're going to get into the reason that Jared is a fucking badass. Okay, I'm really. So, so, so to, just to brief recap. Jared was living in Cold Springs mm-hmm. when he was assaulted, when mm-hmm. he was when he was kidnapped and assaulted and returned. Yes, and yes. throughout the course of an investigation that was clearly very hard on him, his parents decided to move him closer to the perpetrator <sighs> without knowing. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's yep. really upsetting. It's super. Upsetting. That's that to me looks that's that's a very clear. Um, this is the first time that we've come up with a very clear and direct benefit. You know, we were talking about the uh, sex offender registry and, you know, the pros and cons of the general public having access to that information. Why would you ever need that? When would you ever need that? That's a situation where I'm sure they wish they would have known. Sure, but um, Danny Heinrich had never been arrested for a sex crime. Right. Well, that's that's the big problem, right? But he also should have been. So he wouldn't have been on the sex offender registry. Right. Okay, that's valid. Yep. I just, I guess so, I forget that in this time he had not been convicted because it sounds like he probably should have. Yes. Oh, it does sound like it, doesn't yes. it? <laughs> but, I mean... I don't know. I don't know what would have happened if things had been different. Well, but... we can't speculate on that. That's how you go crazy. Yep. Yep. That's true. <laughs> so, so let's go back to Jared, okay. who's a great, I, I think he's a fucking, like, he's the hero of this story. Okay. So Jared, he, he lived his life. He, um, he grew up, he moved to Alaska and got work at a gold prospecting company. Cool. Uh, he moved back to Painesville, he got married, had kids, got divorced, and then moved back into his family home that he bought from his father. Uh, the property is run through by the Crow River. Mm-hmm. And at some point, a blogger, Joy Baker, contacted Jared over Facebook to alert him of the Painesville attacks, which he had no knowledge of previously. So this is how many years later? What year when he was finally informed that the Painesville attacks were a thing? Oh, quite... Quite a few, like like um, early twenty uh, teens. Okay. Yeah. Late late noughties, early teens. Okay. So so you know like twenty years later. Okay. And so he had no knowledge, but before this point of the Painesville attack, that matched his attack. So he exactly. actually, mm-hmm, so he actually got in touch with the boy who told him to look out for Chester the molester. And then from there, he reached out to other Painesville boy victims. Wow. So he was actually involved in solving the case. 
Yeah. Oh, that's so great. That's so great. Yeah. Good for you. No, and he like he like digs all of this stuff up. He like gets their stories. He he starts by sharing his story to them, and then they share his their stories back. And he's like, "Oh my god, these sound so familiar." See also when we discussed those previous eight cases. Mm-hmm. That's really amazing that he had the um, strength to yeah after what he's been through. Yeah, to not just acknowledge it and move past it but then to talk like to be willing to talk to men at this point grown men who Mm -hmm. i mean were relative strangers to him by then yeah to be vulnerable about his own history of sexual assault for the sake of moving forward that's pretty impressive yeah well not only like i mean he he became like a proponent for you know himself and for the painesville victims but he also realized that he was the most likely route to finding what happened to Jacob. So he was doing this for Jacob Wetterling as well. That's amazing. He's, God, if I ever meet this dude, like, bowing. Bowing. <laughs> <laughs> like, really, really amazing work that he's done um, advocating for victims of sexual assault and and for Jacob Wetterling. So, you know, he does this, he starts stirring the pot, and in early 2014, the police finally go back and look at Painesville and Jared Sherrill. Mm-hmm. And this is when they finally test Heinrich's hair. They hadn't tested his hair from... They test his hair for DNA. They hadn't tested it from, what, 20 years prior? 25 years prior? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Great. And they match it to DNA found from Jared's case. So they officially find that Heinrich is the man who assaulted Jared. Dang. Long time coming, Jesus. Well, except for not. Uh Uh-oh. Because statute of limitations. (gasps) Oh. That's right, because there's a statute of limitations on sexual assault. Yep. That's so terrible. It's so bad. And, like, look, I am... I am pro statute of limitations in certain cases. There are certain cases, like um, shoplifting or whatever. You know, there's a certain point of time where it's like, I've moved on with my life and become a better person, and I should not be convicted of something stupid. Well, I guess. 20 years later. Yeah, victim. Anything you could classify as victimless crimes. But, like, murder. There's no statute of limitation. Right, there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be a statute of limitations on, on harming another human being. Like bodily harm, like assault, whether direct, like whether it's you go and curb stomp somebody or whether you sexually assault somebody. I don't know if that should be something that you can just yeah. like wait long well, enough I mean, to be in I, I think from. specifically because of the victim. That being said, sometimes the victims want to move on too, you know? And so there's the reason for statute of limitations with those. But I feel like sexual assault, uh, sexual assault against a child. But I think that should be their choice, not the law. I don't, I don't think there should be a statute. That shouldn't ever have that. a statute of limitations. Yeah. That's something that should never. Like I remember, I remember away. a while back, um, I don't know if it passed or not, but there was legislation put forward in the Utah Congress. It was essentially a bill that would extend the statute of limitations in Utah for child sexual assault, 59 years. Wow. Yeah. So essentially, you dig up old DNA cases from the 70s, 
that you weren't able to test before because DNA wasn't around, and you test it now, if you were a child, you can go after that perpetrator. And I'm down with that, man. Yeah, I think that I agree, like, you know, as far as advocating for victims' rights, if somebody truly, really, really, truly does not want any part of that, I kind of feel like it should be their choice. Mm-hmm. But that that's definitely something that, like, you know, I, I've heard stories of people, you know, growing up and being systematically assaulted mm-hmm. and not ever being able to do anything about it. And I can only imagine that if you hadn't really... I don't think you ever move on from something like that. And if you'd never really had the opportunity to have justice and then could get it, you probably would want it, right? Yeah. I would assume. I think so. I mean, I don't know. I think it depends on the person. Mm-hmm. But I I know that Jared Shirell in this case was real fucking upset about the statute of limitations, especially because nobody had told him about it until after they had found out who Danny Heinrich was. Right. You know? He doesn't necessarily think that he wouldn't have done what he did, but he might not have advocated quite so hard. He might not have spent so much emotional energy into something that he couldn't quite get all, you know, he couldn't get that resolution for. Right. Okay. So then what happened? So, well, okay. So, so something did come from the DNA Mm -hmm. because they were able to match the DNA and essentially, you know, they, they couldn't prove it to like arrest and charge Heinrich but they could prove it to get a search warrant for Heinrich Mm -hmm. because they knew that the guy who had attacked Jared was also probably the guy that had attacked Jacob Mm -hmm. so they got a search warrant for Heinrich's place and what they found was a fuckload of child porn of course so so they found a bunch of child porn. They also found four bins of boys' clothing. Oh my god, four bins? Yeah. And they found a pair of handcuffs that was next to a roll of duct tape. That's upsetting. And they found hours and hours of VHS tapes that were filled with home videos of children. Now, this wasn't the child porn, thank god. But essentially, he was filming kids at the park and kids riding by on a bike and he had this weird coin trick where he you'd basically see him set up the camera and then he put a coin on the stairs Mm -hmm. where he knew like a paper boy would come by essentially Mm -hmm. and the boy would stop and bend down to pick up the coin so that he got a nice old boy ass in the frame oh god like fucking like he had this down and then there's also a video where he gives like this this tour of his house Mm -hmm. and he opens up a safe and focuses in on a pistol. So he had all of this stuff in his house that essentially indicated that he never stopped being a creepy child molesting pedophile. Mm -hmm. But essentially they had a bunch of charges on him for child porn. It was like 24 or something. Right. So they arrest him Mm -hmm. and they, they begin the charging process. And in September of 2016, they make a deal where he would confess to the murder and assaults of Jacob and Jared. And they would lead the police to Jacob's body. And Heinrich would not be charged with Jacob's murder or Jared's assault. 
and they would drop all but one of the charges for child pornography. They also agreed to not ask about any other crimes. That doesn't seem like a good deal. I don't think so either. Because what do they mean not ask about any other crimes? That seems like hinting that he's involved in other crimes that they might one day be able to relate that link to him and they're just like off limits now. I imagine if they were to find some kind of proof that would link him to those other crimes outside of what they found in this search warrant that they would be allowed to ask him because it would be outside of this deal. But just being like, oh, hey, this crime sounds like a thing that you did. Did you do this? No, not allowed to ask him. I think it's a terrible deal. So, yeah, that's screwing people out of potential closure, too. Like, what if there's other missing children and stuff? Just... That's exactly why I think it's a terrible deal. (laughs) So, what... Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, how long does one go to jail for one charge of child pornography? 20 years. So, he... Assaults several boys. For sure we know murders one. And he goes to jail for 20 years? He will get out in his early 70s. Um, that's not okay. No, it's not okay. Maybe if he got out in his early 70s, if he had been picked up in the 80s, I'd be okay with that. You know, when he first fucking murdered a boy. Right. But you only serve 20 years after basically ruining countless lives? Well, and ag- nah. again, too, the whole that whole clause about not being able to ask him about other crimes, that really heavily implies that there would have been more that he's connected to. And how could there not be? How could there not be? If well, he, I mean, like, if I he, think with the, like, roll of duct tape and handcuffs. Right. And if he got um, away with those other, you know, if he got away with murder for that long and then was obviously continuing to be a creepy as hell pedophile, like... Mm-hmm. We know he was stalking boys on their paper routes. Yeah, how... Like, there's no chance that he didn't commit more assaults. Or possibly even I, murders. Like, that's so... Yeah, no, I find it really unlikely that he did... Like, maybe he... So is this... County. Okay, so is this still Stearns County? This is still Stearns so County. So, how fucked are you, Stearns County? Like, come on. Barely. Like, how is that worth it? Well... I mean, so... So this was a federal charge so it was the federal prosecutor who made this deal and and i think that the prosecutor was kind of working with with what he had to work with because stearns county had fucked up the case so bad and the prosecutor was essentially like we need to find jacob's body right it seems like know what happened it seems like they were pretty much just making whatever deal they could for jacob's body and that was it yeah and that was the big thing that they were trying to get into hell with everything else should have been able to do that without making such a stupid fucking deal no i think that they should have for sure but uh so so let's get into let's let's go back in the time machine and kind of go through what happened from Heinrich's point of, point of view. Okay. So, I wrote, I wrote in my outline, who the fuck is this piece of shit? Mm-hmm. So, Danny Heinrich was born in Painesville on March 3rd, 1963, to Corrine and Howard Heinrich. He was the middle of three boys, and his parents divorced in 1978 when Heinrich was in 8th grade. He then dropped out of school in 10th grade. Now we're wait, gonna wait, get into stop. So these pictures of sorry? him these pictures of him from ninety seven or sorry, seventy seven, seventy eight, and seventy nine. How old was he in seventy yep. eight? Uh eighth grade. Wow. He looks like a very old eighth grader. 
that puts these pictures. <laughs> well, I mean, in he basically goes from seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. Like he he goes from like, oh yeah, that's a little boy, to like, oh, that's an old man mm-hmm. boy. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry. Continue. No, no, you're fine. So now we're going to get into the back, that backstory that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So in the 70s and 80s, Painesville already had a local pedophile, Dwayne Hart, or people also called him Dewey. Okay. So Dewey used money, alcohol, and marijuana to get local boys to allow him to sexually assault them. Great. Dewey also hung out with Danny Heinrich's older brother, brother at a place called the Big Valley, which was a farmland just outside of Painesville. Okay. Uh, or at least downtown Painesville. Danny also spent time with Dewey, and they know that they had sex, although it's not clear if they began having sex before or after Danny came of age. But considering how Danny ended up, I kind of assume that he might have been molested by Dewey. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. So... Dewey was civilly committed in 1993 for being a sexually dangerous sexual psychopath, and he currently lives in a cell at the Minnesota Sex Offender Program facility in Moose Lake. Okay. He was convicted in 1990 for sexually assaulting four boys. So that's that civil commitment thing. You serve your time, Mm -hmm. and they're like, no, you're still definitely going to commit, like, more gross, awful things. And so they civilly commit them. Okay. So they're not, is that like a different level of, is that a different kind of facility? It is outside of the criminal system. Yeah, it is in, it it is generally speaking in in, a mental health, like asylum. Okay, that's good. I feel like that makes sense, right? If you Mm -hmm. serve your time, serve your time. But if you're crazy and obviously going to commit the same kind of If you are going to violate more people, more people's rights, Mm then, okay, sure, you've served your time. You don't necessarily deserve to live your life out in a jail sale, but um, we should get you proper treatment. <laughs> Away from peoples. Away from people that you might fucking hurt, yeah. So after after Dewey's arrested, his defense attorney hires a private detective, mm-hmm. Larry Burt, to look into him and the Jacob Wetterling case because he was on you know the list of suspects because he was... A local pedophile. So after, I'm sorry, say that one more time. After Dewey was arrested? Dewey was arrested. He was convicted in 1990. Uh-huh. So it was like right after Jacob Wetterling disappears. Uh-huh. Which means that, of course, he was on a short list of like, these are likely suspects. Mm-hmm. So. So Dewey hires a private investigator. Well, his defense, his defense attorney, attorney does. does. To investigate what exactly? To make sure that Hart wasn't involved in the Wetterling case, basically, so that his defense attorney doesn't have to also worry about this other criminal case. Okay. Which is a valid thing. Okay. Good job, defense attorney. You did the right thing. Um, <laughs> so, Kurt was actually satisfied that Hart was not the criminal mm-hmm. behind the Wetterling abduction. Basically, because, like, the way that I described, he used money, alcohol, marijuana, right? Totally different MO. So, he basically, yeah, he would lure boys into his home and then do the creepy, like, money for sex thing. Yeah. Which is very different from, I've got a gun, get down, I'll kill you, kidnap by force, right? right? very different. So, so he was satisfied that um, Dewey Hart wasn't behind the Wetterling abduction. However, Hart did list off some of his other known pedophile friends. Mm. 
And not only was Danny Heinrich listed, mm-hmm. but he was actually considered particularly notable. By Dewey. Uh, by Dewey and by Pert, the private detective. Okay. Now, he doesn't remember exactly why. It was probably, like, some details that Pert gave him. But, like, even the private detective was able to be like, oh, this guy probably did it. Yeah, this one. <laughs> we should look into him. Mm. So, uh, 1979, Danny Heinrich first starts getting into trouble with the law. Uh, beginning with thefts from bicycles to tools from garages. Okay. He eventually goes to break-ins. In the 1980s, he's taken into custody by the Stearns County Social Services and placed at Wilmer State Hospital, the youth unit, for emotional problems that he's not receiving proper care for at home. Uh, At this time, he's 17. Mm -hmm. So essentially, he ends up in uh, State Hospital foster care. Okay. Uh, he graduates out of that, and in 1982, Heinrich joins the National Guard, which, camo. Yeah. <laughs> that same year, he receives a DUI. In 1984, Danny's caught breaking into a consignment store, where he confesses to earlier break-ins into the same store and another store over the previous year. Great, okay. He's, yeah, he's quoted saying, I don't know why I do these things. And he pleads guilty to two counts of burglary. Okay. He gets 30 days in jail with work release and probation, which is released in 1985. In 1986, he gets another DUI, which uh, is where the officer finds the police scanner. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's on probation until 1987, which is right around when those sexual assaults start. Right, that's what I was thinking, too, probation for... It's right in the middle. Yeah. Yep. So, October... Okay, uh... Okay, so on October 8th, 1989, Heinrich stops working. Okay. Jacob Wetterling is abducted October 22nd, 1989. In November 1989, he moves into his father's home. He also gets a job in St. Cloud, which is one of the pink dots on that Mm -hmm. map. Um, I think at the very bottom, I put a, uh, a map. There it is. Okay, Ta-da! yes. All right. So, I took the liberty of... Google mapping his route? Google mapping his route from Painesville to St. Cloud. Mm-hmm. The fastest way? It's not the fastest way. It's one of the fastest ways. It was the first route that Google pulled up for me. Mm-hmm. Goes right the fuck through St. Joe. Yeah, I was noticing that. Just, you know, seems notable. <laughs> so essentially, he's unemployed for the month that Jacob goes missing. When he's living, and then when he's... When he's living in Painesville. Mm-hmm. And then... And he's still living in Painesville. Right, and he gets a job in St. Cloud... Presumably right driving back and forth through St. Joseph. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. It's just kind of... You know that he knows that route. Right. That seems relevant. And I think yep. it even seems relevant that um, it's not necessarily the shortest route, but also thinking about, you know, hi- like when highways were constructed and everything, and... Mm-hmm. If Google automatically uh, directed you to go the sa- this route that goes through um, 
St. Joe. Roads, like common usage roads, don't change at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. It it directs oh, yeah, no, you to go the way, the way it was. It directs you to go the way that has the least traffic, regardless of mileage mm-hmm. or speed limits. It's like this is the best way. This is how you know. So mm-hmm. of course that would have been the way he went even that long ago. So that's just a notable thing that's notable. I don't like it. Uh, I don't like it either. So. So that's the major stuff that, like, leads up to all of this. Um, there's other stuff that went on in his life, but, like, who gives a fuck? He's an asshole. So in July of 2015, his DNA is matched to the Jared Schneidel case. His home is searched two weeks after his DNA is matched, mm-hmm. and he is arrested in October. In December, he is indicted on 25 counts of possessing and receiving child pornography. In August 26 of 2016, Heinrich's defense team tells the U.S. Attorney's Office that he's interested in a deal. August 31st, he leads police to Jacob's remain. And September 6th, Heinrich confesses to the abductions, assaults, and murder of Jared Jared and Jacob in court. So, I put in my outline, like, do we want to talk about the child porn? And... I don't really. No. Uh, okay. You know, there is some interesting stuff that I learned about. Apparently, there is a thing where you put a child's face on a different naked body, and it's called morphed child porn. And apparently, he had a bunch of those, and most of them, or at least a considerable amount of them, were of a person he knew in seventh grade. And the, that person's seventh grade yearbook photo. Weird. Super weird. And like, um... There has to be some history there. Oh, yeah. He he thought his seventh grade classmate was hot forever. But also, like, the particular... Like, so, so they dropped all but one count, mm-hmm. right? And they didn't drop all but the first count or the last count. And they didn't drop all but the worst count. And so I was like, what the fuck is this shit? And that's kind of where I talked to my prosecutor mm-hmm. friend to be like, why do you decide? Because I've never prosecuted. Um, I don't actually have any experience in prosecution. Mm-hmm. So so I was like, when making a deal, how do you decide like, what? To keep and what to, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we went over some, some things. Like, a lot of times you want to... You want to drop all but the thing that is increasable. Like, if you reoffend, you can increase the charge mm-hmm. using this particular. But I think most likely, looking through what he was charged mm-hmm. with, because I looked through his indictment, and it was a thing that I looked at, and um, thank God they didn't, they, thank God they don't attach the images. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> to an indictment. Mm-hmm. But I, I read the descriptions and that was fun. And I think most likely what they charged him with was the most recent downloaded image of child porn. Okay. That's my best guess. Okay. But I don't actually know how they decided right. what to drop and what not to drop. Probably because they wanted to keep that unless they got something in case they got something that was related to it that could lead to them catching the distributor or something like that, right? That Maybe. makes sense. 
Because well, I mean, so they they ran some of the images through. Um, so there's like a a child porn database that is that is for law and bo- law enforcement. It's yeah. not for child pornographers. It's um and it's essentially known victims. Yeah. So they can run. It's like a reverse image search, but it's right. Not so they just can try that image. It's also victims. for the face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were able to pin down at least eight known victims. And so I don't know if one of the weird things was the the one of the weird things was that the uh, the particular image that he was charged for was actually of a female victim, mm. which was kind of outside his mo. So I don't know if she was one of the victims that was of the eight people that were identified, mm-hmm. or if she wasn't. But yeah, best best guess is it's the most recent downloaded image, and therefore like there's less risk of sexual limitations running and right, things like um, that. You know, and, and probably like the metadata is easier to trail because it's not from fucking like 2000; it's from 2004 or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, so that's my best guess, but I, <laughs> you know, you can read the court transcripts, but like at some point stuff becomes privileged because it goes on in the office. Right, right. So I'm not a hundred percent sure as to why they picked that particular image. Um, all right. So this is where the story gets really, really awful. Oh, it hasn't gotten really, really awful yet. <laughs> it gets more awful because I'm going to tell you what Danny said in court. Okay. So this is what happened on October 22nd, 1989. So Danny, he, he drove from his apartment in Painesville to St. Joseph. And in his car, Heinrich kept a police scanner and a 38 revolver. After 8 p.m., he turned down the long dead-end road toward the Wetterling home, and he parked his car on a gravel driveway across from a cornfield after he saw three kids biking into town. Now we can presume that this is the Rassier driveway. Right, that'd make perfect sense. Last episode. So he saw the kids again, he gets out of his car, he put on a mask, and he walked into the road. He ordered the kids into the ditch, and he grabbed Jacob. He handcuffed Jacob behind his back and put him in the passenger seat. And I am not fucking kidding you. When I read this, I turned away from the screen, even though I was just reading. Okay. Jacob asked him, what did I do wrong? Mm. I almost cried. (laughs) So they drove for a while, long enough to start hearing activity on the police scanner. And... At some point, uh, he turns off the scanner. Heinrich told Jacob to duck down until they get out of St. Joseph, uh, and then he could sit back up. He drove west out of St. Joseph on Highway 75 up to Albany, which is one of the pink dots. Mm -hmm. And then he took a country road down to Highway 23 going into Painesville. (sighs) So he pulled up a side road just out of town off of Highway 23. He pulled up to a field and gravel pit next to a grove of trees, an area Heinrich was familiar with, Mm -hmm. an area that was probably the Big Valley. That would make perfect sense. Oh, dear. He handcuffed Jacob. He made him undress. He undressed himself. And then he assaulted him. 
if it is any consolation, he did not penetrate or actually have sex with Jacob, if that makes anyone feel any better. It probably doesn't. No, not really. I mean, like, I'm glad so, that didn't happen, but it's not better. It's not a lot better, yeah. So after about 20 to 30 minutes, Jacob said he was cold, and Heinrich told him he could get dressed. Jacob asked Heinrich if he was taking him home, and Heinrich told Jacob that he couldn't take him all the way, and Jacob began to cry. Heinrich told him to stop. On the way back to the car, Heinrich saw a police car drive by with lights on but no siren, which spooked Heinrich. So he took out his pistol and he loaded two rounds. He told Jacob to turn around, saying that he had to go to the bathroom. He says that Jacob had no idea what was going on at the time. He raised the revolver to Jacob's head and he turned his head to click it and it didn't go off because the chamber didn't line up. So he clicked it again and it fired and he looked back and Jacob was still standing. He hadn't yet fallen to the ground. So he raised the revolver again and fired a second shot and that's when Jacob finally fell. He left Jacob's body and drove home and he stayed at his apartment for a few hours. Then he went back on foot. He walked about the mile from his apartment to the murder site carrying a shovel. Um, it was actually an entrenching tool because, you know, military. Mm-hmm. Uh, He attempted to dig a grave, but the shovel was too small. So Heinrich walked to a nearby construction company and stole a bobcat. He turned the lights on so he could find Jacob's body. He used the bobcat to dig a grave, and he put Jacob's body in the grave, then used the bobcat to cover the hole. At this point, it was after midnight. He returned the bobcat and went back to the grave where he attempted to cover it up more with gravel and grass. Then he realized he hadn't buried Jacob's shoes, so he walked down the road and threw them into a ravine. Then he walked home. Most likely, from the map that I've looked Mm -hmm. at, the ravine was Crow's River, which was the same river that cut through Jared Shire's home. Okay. That's upsetting as well. Yep. So I'm going to copy-paste another image to you. All right. So about a year afterwards, um, after this happens, Heinrich returns to the burial site. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay. This was the entrenching tool. The last time it was a small shovel. So he walked there. He walked to the burial site from his home around midnight. He carried a flashlight, a bag, and an entrenching tool. At the site, he realized Jacob's red jacket could be seen from above the ground. The site was already so uncovered that he didn't actually have to dig anything. He gathered as much as he could, the jacket, the bones, the skull, and he placed them in the bag. Then he transported those remains across the highway to a rural farm not far from where Jacob was murdered the year before. He used the entrenching tool to dig a hole about two feet, then he placed the bones in the hole and then the jacket over the bones. He covered it up and he left. So then Heinrich was asked to recount the story of Jared's abduction. And I've already told it from Jared's perspective, Mm -hmm. so I don't need to retell it. But one thing that, um, that Jared has no memory of, according to Heinrich, he told Jared, if you throw up, I'll kill you. Jared doesn't, 
he he never heard him say that. Mm-hmm. He never said that in any of his police reports. So Jared believes that this is indicative that Heinrich had other victims like him. Oh, yeah. And he was mixing him up with another boy. Right. That makes perfect sense. Ugh. Okay. We're out of, we're out of the, the awful slog. I'm sure that was like five or ten minutes of awfulness for anybody listening. And I'm really sorry if you're still with us. Thank you. So Heinrich's in jail for or in prison for the next 18 years now. And um, the only good thing that came out of this case is in September of 2018, a new sheriff came in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, a new sheriff actually came in like 2017 after, after in the dark podcast came out uh-huh. essentially and like railed on the Stearns County Sheriff Department for fucking up. Yeah. So this new sheriff comes in, and in 2018, uh, in September 2018, this this new sheriff holds a, a conference for discussing the FUBAR that was Jacob Wetterling's Wetterling's case, and he acknowledges all of the bullshit. He acknowledges all of the things that went wrong. He acknowledges that they fucked up. And that maybe there might finally be some accountability within that office. Well, that'd be great. What really, I think for me, if especially if I was a resident of that county, what would matter even more to me than, you know, accountability 20, 25 years after the fact would be, you know, fixing the system, like finding ways, make, take, you know, having action plans, maybe more training, right? Like really mm-hmm. trying to take a practical approach to making sure that doesn't ever happen again. Right. Well, and I, I guess that's that's part of what I mean, because I think one of the things that he did was he, they, they used to have, like, investigators on rotation, mm-hmm. and he turned off the rotation. He was like, no, you are an investigator, you're going to investigate, you're going to stay on those cases, you're going to be consistent. Right. <sighs> so, yeah, that's, um, re- remember how, uh, how a while back I asked you permission to do stories that were this heavy? Mm-hmm. This is literally why. Yeah. I was like, do you think that you are actually willing and interested in doing something this awful? I think it's, I mean, it's (laughs) awful and it's upsetting. um, But at the same time, I think it provides really um, sort of a necessary understanding and level of background information for other things we're going to explore. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you, it's not like we want to, uh, I don't want to exploit the victims. No, and that's what I was just thinking about, is that fine line between, like, obviously we do this, you know, there's an element of entertainment, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's something that we do and something that we share because it's a genuine interest, and I think that, especially with both the lines of work we've ended up in, you know, there is an element of, of true caring and wanting things to be improved, and you mm-hmm. definitely can't make things better without discussing the problems and how we got here. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I don't, I don't want to be exploitative. I don't want to tell you fucked up stories for the sake of shock value, but there are some stories that are fucked up that I'm, you know, part of them I am genuinely interested in because like, how does anybody get that horrible? Mm Mm-hmm. But also, I think that there's a purpose in telling these stories and that sometimes 
there's more to take away from it. I mean, there's a lot of learning to be had from this story. Right. There's a lot more to take away from it than just, oh my God, horrible things happen to children. Like, that's not yeah. really the point of this story, it doesn't feel like. Yeah. I think we had a lot of different things that we wanted to tell about this case that weren't just, oh my God, horrible things happen. Well, and I think even as it relates to the justice system, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, having this sort of background understanding and information, I think will help moving forward with other cases that we discuss, Mm -hmm. you know, just having a more practical idea of how these things can go down. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, especially, so, you know, I felt the need to do this in a two-parter because there was what happened and what we knew when we created the sex offender registry, Mm -hmm. um, which is the original purpose that I wanted to tell the story for. But then there's what actually happened. And since we now know, I wanted to also tell that story. Yeah. Because I couldn't just leave it with Jacob got kidnapped. We have no idea where he is. Okay. So then I think something that's really important to ask, uh, in drawing this connection, right, with the whole first episode being the events leading up to the creation of the sex offender registry and the second episode being, you know, how the case actually went down at that time and, you know, what was done about it in the present. Um, Your personal opinion, what do you think would have possibly been different had the registry existed at that time? I don't think anything would have changed because Heinrich was never on it. I think they would have had an easier time finding and ruling out other sex offenders, but otherwise I don't think. And again, that goes back to sex offender registry as a police tool, not sex offender registry as a right. And thing I'm for the public. And I am talking about it as a police tool, but I wonder about things like, um, what was his name? Dwayne, right? Like he Dwayne. would have been on it and potentially. Well, I think that as soon as he, so I don't know if he was a sex offender before he got, I don't know if he was a convicted sex offender before he Mm -hmm. um, was convicted for those four assaults. And then he was uh, civilly committed. Right. So again, again, though, any kind of, any kind of database though, if he would have been on it, maybe they could have tracked his, I don't know. I don't know. So what is the moral of this? I mean, I think, (laughs) I mean, I think the takeaway for, for this section for part two goes back to if we're going to have police that are there to protect us and at least attempt to solve the crimes once they've been done, we need to have better police work. You know? So it's not about, it's, it really is about the caliber of, it's not about the tools that were available to them. It's about how they did their jobs and whether or not they were organized and how they communicated. Yeah. And, and, There are some places that have really high clearance rates for their, for their, you know, bigger deal offenses Mm -hmm. that are felony cases. And there are some places that have really low clearance rates. And Stearns County is one of those really low clearance rates counties. You know, they don't solve a lot of those ridiculous crimes. And... I don't think that it's just that they had all of the hard-to-solve crimes. No, that's not how that works. I think that their police... And I mean, you know, when listening to them, there was a whole bunch of, I don't think we would have done anything different. And it's like, are you sure? I stand by my past mistakes. You know? And it's like, if you have a police... Like, 
I understand police making mistakes. I understand that police are humans. But if you have a case that is this foobard and you have other cases that are this foobard and you think that every time you've worked a case, you've done the best job that could possibly be done, then you might be doing something wrong. Right, you might be in the wrong line of work. Jesus. Yeah. And so, you know, I I think like stubbornness and an unwillingness to learn from your mistakes is one of the problems with this case. Right, I would agree with that. But I don't know if there's necessarily, like, a societal takeaway for this episode so much as a, like, can we get some better something? Can we get something better from the police, from the people that are supposed to protect us? Mm-hmm. So, uh, did you want a happy thing for the end? Because that would be good. Um, <laughs> happy thing, happy thing, happy we need thing. A, happy we thing. need a palate cleanser. <laughs> like, just something I'm happy about? Yeah, just something that's not murder. Something that's not murder. Or sexual assault. Yeah. Um, I've got something. Okay, share. Okay. I'm going to be like a dork, but the red moon. The red moon was so cool. So so a couple years back, um, when you could see it all across like the middle section of America, mm-hmm. the, the solar eclipse, yeah. I actually drove up to Idaho to go and like get a good view of it. And it was 100% worth it. Like, I spent all day in my fucking car, but it was 100% worth it. Because that was the craziest shit I have ever seen. Yeah. Like, there were colors that were not capable of being made in nature. Awesome. That the I solar saw. Eclipse. It was I was really at work that cool. day. I watched it with the kids. Oh, that's, that's cool. Yeah, no, I saw a bunch of uh, people, you know, looking at the crescent moons back in Utah. Mm-hmm. But that I went up to... And I remember talking to my mom about it because, you know, my, my folks are, are astrophysicists. And so my mom was being a big nerd about it. And she said that she actually cried oh. when when she saw it. And uh, I wasn't quite brought to tears when I saw the solar eclipse. I was more just like my mind exploded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. But... I was watching the red moon and I was watching it as it went from like a partial crescent into like its full darkened red state. Mm -hmm. And it almost started to get a crown. And I almost started crying. Because I was looking at this and everywhere where the sky was dark, you could see this eclipse. And so me and millions, maybe even billions of people were looking at the same night sky at the same point in the night sky. Mm-hmm. And that was just like weirdly beautiful to me. Right, all that collective energy. Because like, I mean, not just like the awe of it, but like the fact that we have access to this awe, like the fact that our globe and our sun and our moon are exactly the shapes and positions that they are makes it so that we can get ring of fire mm-hmm. eclipses and like <laughs> like it's the reason that we can see these things if it was a little bigger or a little closer or a little you know if it was just a little different we wouldn't be able to see these things and so this this shared awe with with just and humanity all the things that had to culminate to make that possible yeah it was just like 
it was almost spiritual. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just, I, I felt whole. I felt one with the universe. I felt interconnected. You know, I think that's really funny because I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it before I went out and looked at it. And like I was telling you before we started recording, I felt compelled to kind of, you know, I can be kind of disconnected from my, uh, emotions and my intuitive side Mm -hmm. uh you know largely as a defense mechanism but that's not for that's neither here nor there but i just felt compelled to engage with it on a more uh i guess you would say kind of like spiritual level and Mm -hmm. that that felt really good and it felt like really important and it's something that just you know just in the brief amount of time that's passed since then that i've been glad uh that I was kind of open to engaging with that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that for me, the takeaway is kind of, you know, and our listeners probably don't, that I'm pretty on the fence about anything uh, uh, spiritual. And I think our listeners have figured out that we're not exactly God fearing. Yeah. <laughs> but that, uh, like I was saying earlier, I do see a lot of value in ceremony. And whether that's just uh, because you're planting a seed in your own psyche or whether that's because you believe in something bigger, I think based on what you've just said in my experience, I think the takeaway of this whole lunar eclipse is, you know, I definitely would encourage people to kind of be open to experiencing something from a spiritual perspective, whether or not you believe that, because trying to allow yourself to experience it that way can have like untold benefits Mm -hmm. whether or not that's your jam (laughs) yeah yeah because spirituality is not my jam but every once in a while i kind of allow myself to you know like um i i have appreciation for the fact that my matter cannot be destroyed right that on an atomic level you will always be Mm-hmm. And so I will always be interconnected with the matter of everyone else who has ever touched my life. Mm-hmm. And that's a weird Buddhist scientist, atheist way of being comforted. But it's spiritual, mm-hmm. even though it's really just a weird atheist scientist thing. <laughs> right. And I think that's kind of what I meant by being open to experiencing things from a spiritual perspective. You know, I'm not saying go to church. I'm saying, like, allow yourself to find awe. Yeah. Or connection or motivation or inspiration in moments that you might not necessarily uh, have otherwise found without that, like, uh, intention. Yeah. Yeah, no, I am really grateful for awe. It's nice. It's a good thing. Yeah. My mind is blown all the time, and I love it. <laughs> we gotta sign off, I think. We gotta sign off. Okay. Yeah. Um, stuff that I want to say about things. Oh yeah. So follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook now. Ooh, Palm Pitch Pod. Palm Pitch, Palm Pitch Pod. Pod. And I think it's even Facebook slash Palm Pitch Pod. So like literally everything is Palm Pitch Pod. Palm Pitch Pod at Gmail. If you want to like send us a nice long love letter, or send us a fucking article that we do a whole episode on (laughs) i'd be into that please do that somebody do that somebody do that also if anybody feels the need to share us with their friends or rate and review us on whatever platform that they are taking in our content 
uh, that helps us, you know, get out to more people. and Also, it helps us do better. And it helps us do better. Because motivation or whatever. Mm. <laughs> you know, if you don't know, you can't fix it. Oh, yeah. If we do something egregious and nobody tells us, how are we maybe going to consider not being egregious in the future? Yeah. Well, and also, so um, after last episode, I was feeling really vulnerable because of, like, sharing my own story and mm-hmm. also sharing such a heavy story. And I got, like, a ton of very positive feedback from people. And I really appreciated that. And honestly, like, it's given me the will to continue on this particular topic. Yeah, that's super sweet. So thanks for everybody who's been, like, really supportive. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Aw, the love. Okay. Love. All right. right. Okay, love you, bye. Love you, bye. (laughs)